Please open your scriptures to Revelation 15. We are in a series in the book of Revelation. And we have been in the interlude, which is chapters 12 to 14. There are these interludes between uh, the seals and the trumpets, and then another interlude between the trumpets and the bowls. And this interlude uh, covers three chapters. And it began, the interlude, with a great conflict between Satan and God's people. That's chapters 12 to 13. And then ended with what we saw last week with a harvest of both the righteous and the wicked. Now the narrative returns to the judgments of God again. And in this case, though, there's going to be a subtle twist because there's going to be a finality to these judgments. And so in the other judgments, you saw partial devastation of the earth, partial devastation of humanity. Now it's going to be complete. And so that is what sort of brings our attention to this text. Twice already, John has taken us through the whole range of God's judgments The visions of the seven seals, the vision of the seven trumpets. And each time he was telling us something that was going to happen in the end time, something that was happening throughout history. Now, under the imagery of seven angels pouring out contents of seven bowls, if you could just picture that in your mind, they have these bowls and they're filled and on command, they start to pour these bowls out. The contents of the bowls starts to spill out. And as we look forward, and that is really the purpose of Revelation, is to cause you to look forward to certain events, we are given a glimpse of what can be. Right? We often look back and regret about what could have been. Revelation is actually causing you to adjust your actions now, to stop you in your tracks, to arrest you, and give you a picture of what can be for everyone And here's what the future can hold. Instead of being terrified by the justice of God, you can actually praise God for it. Instead of being overwhelmed and undone at the white hot fury of God's wrath, you can praise God with song for his justice. Isn't that what we desire in our hearts? I mean, maybe not for ourselves, but for others. We want God's justice. We want him to come in as a judge and mete out righteous judgments. That's exactly what we see here. Because we each have a sense of being answerable to God. Or we have that sense of what Romans 1 says, of standing before God without what? Without, Without excuse. There will be no excuses offered to God on the day of judgment. There will be no, but nothing like that will ever stand before God. There are simply two ways in which the wrath of God can be dealt with. The wrath of God can either fall upon you eternally, or the wrath of God can fall upon his sacrificial lamb, his son, Jesus Christ. That's the only two ways to deal with God's wrath. So what I'm saying, instead of being fearful and terrified, when you realize that God's wrath fell upon his son for you, then you can sing and praise God and find great comfort. It's what Romans 4 says. It shows a a comfort that is just as deep and searching as his justice. Romans 4 says, 
Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Like that song, Jesus, thank you. Your enemy, you've made your friend. We have peace with him. Let's look at Revelation 15. Let's look at the text this morning as John here stresses the majesty of God over the whole historical process as history rushes to its end. Look at Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Verse 5. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is what we are being prepared for as we move now into chapter 16. Revelation 15 is sort of this preliminary statement that John is accustomed to giving us. It's an explanation. It's an overview. It's another glimpse into heaven before the judgments fall upon the earth. It's a superscription to the entire section. He says this, I saw another sign in heaven. Do you remember the first great sign? The first great sign was back in 12.1. It was a woman clothed with the sun. There was a second sign in chapter 12, verse 3, and that sign was the great red dragon. Now a third sign appears, like the others, in heaven, in John's vision. But unlike the others, this one is described like this. It wasn't just a great sign. This one is great and amazing. Matter of fact, if you, if you just like transliterate what it means, this is mega wonderful. I mean, when John sees this, he's like, this is awesome. This sign, unlike the other great signs, is a mega wondrous sign. So what does he see? What is so great and amazing? Seven angels with seven plagues. God is the majestic sovereign who rules over the whole earth and the the entire historical process. And the seven angels with seven plagues, when he uses the word plagues, what does that bring to mind? What portion of Scripture? 
Right. Later on, it's going to be talking about the Song of Moses. And we looked back at that when God used signs and wonders to deliver, to liberate his people out of Egypt and go through, pass over. Remember that that there was blood and the death angel passed over those who applied that blood. And then there was an exodus. So you have these plagues leading to a pass over and then an exodus through what would have otherwise been death. The plagues were assigned to the Egyptians of God's power in judgment. But I want us to capture this a little more this morning. To Israel, the plagues were a sign of what? Protection. Mercy. And deliverance. And that really are the, those, those are the two rows we were on this morning. You're either terrified by the wrath of God and you are going to be reminded of God's power in judgment. Or you take comfort in the fact that God's wrath was poured out on another for you and you find mercy, protection and deliverance. I hope as we as we read the text, you saw these two words, last and final. So whereas the seven seals were not described as that and the seven the seven Uh, Trumpets were not defined as that. These plagues are the last. One writer says it this way. This is the last divine lawsuit of human history. This is the last court of appeals. This is the last opportunity to plead guilty. This is the last opportunity to call for rescue. There will be no other life raft sent into the middle of the stormy ocean. This is the last opportunity. It is the last warning. There will be no more words, cautions, or appeals to return. This is an incredibly wondrous sign. Seven angels with seven plagues that are the last warning. If you bring it into the world of parenting, it's like the parent to the rebellious adult child who makes a final desperate appeal before that child goes the way of destruction. Okay, but I've warned you. I love you. Please don't do this. This is not going to turn out well for you. I won't say any more about it. That's what you have here in the bowls. We are supposed to sense the finality of this. To any of us who have lost a loved one, we we know in 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 some measure what that finality feels like. There is no more picking up the phone to call that loved one. No more planned visits. No recent photos. Life with that person as we know it on earth is finished. There's a finality. It's over. For children, think of it as the finality of your favorite food or activities. Okay, just think, what is your, don't, don't call it out loud, what is your favorite food? Okay, what if yesterday was the last opportunity you had to eat New York style pizza or Chick-fil-A? You're not getting that today. There's a finality on Sundays to Chick-fil-A. Okay, there's, it's, it's done. But what if tomorrow they didn't open all Chick-fil-A shut down? That's your favorite sandwich. It's done. What about skiing or swimming or riding a bike or a horse? What if yesterday all that ended it's over it's done 
you hit your last baseball yesterday or you swung your last strike yesterday, you'll never enjoy the game again. See, that's, that's what this interlude is actually supposed to press home upon our hearts. These are the last. This is the final. But for believers, even if we are killed, there's a new heaven and a new earth with new experiences and joys that never diminish So we move from this great and wondrous vision of the seven angels with the seven plagues to an unexpected scene. Look at verse 2. We already read it, but I'm going to read it just to, to bring it back to the forefront of our minds. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, the only other time John references the sea of glass is back in chapter 4, verse 6, where he is taken up into the throne room of God and he's describing the elders and those four creatures as the inner circle around the throne and then the elders that are sort of in these concentric circles spanning out. But before that throne, there was like a sea of crystal or glass. And it sort of presents this magisterial distance between But this time, look at it. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass, but this time it looks different. It's mingled with something. It's mingled with fire. And this is not what I expected to see. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. John sees two things. What does he see? A sea of glass mingled with fire. And overcomers with harps in their hand. It's a beautiful picture. To just kind of, and so the the fire, in a sense, doesn't pose a threat to those that are standing on the coastline or on the beach of this sea or of something that looks like the sea of glass. There they are standing with harps of God in their hands. You have this. Picture of the majesty of God, perhaps mingled with fire, is an image of judgment. The saints who have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name are there with their harps. By the way, do you know how to conquer the beast? Do you remember how they conquered the beast? Okay, hold your, hold your place there and go back to, to Revelation chapter 12. Look at verse 11. Because as this scene unfolds and as these bowls begin to be poured out, I want to be on the coastline with a harp. Okay, this is these are the images, these these mixed images that are presented to us. And they have conquered him by what? By the blood of the lamb. Okay, so you have this exodus imagery, this exodus theology that is coming out. They have conquered the beast with the blood of the lamb. Death passes over John 5:24 they have passed from death unto life how did they do that they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death nothing not even death can triumph over god's people Matter of fact, in the early church, a person's martyrdom was often called the day of his or her victory. Why? Because by faith, they looked forward to a city whose builder and maker is God. A place where there are greater delights and where there is no tear, where there is no death. Romans 8 says this, and all these things, we are more than conquerors. How? 
through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ we are more than conquerors. So, victorious saints have overcome three things. What are they? You look at the text, what are the three things that victorious saints have overcome through the Lamb? Well, first of all, the beast. Right? There's this victors over the beast's attempts to mold us into his distorted and grotesque image. This past week, uh, Matt said that we were at a conference together in, in one of the speakers, Matt Chandler, had said just a, a startling statement to me. He said, the world is discipling us. The world is making us follower learners of itself. Everything we hear, everything we see, everything we experience, we are being discipled by the world. Do you know that the beast desires what is intended for the Son of God? And so he desires to shape us and to mold us into his image. And he does so with incessant discipling. And we make a choice every day. We make a choice every hour. Am I going to be a follower and learner of Jesus Christ? Or am I going to be a follower and a learner of the beast? Victorious saints have overcome the beast. They've also overcome its image. And if you recall back to when we studied that, this means that we are victors over the religious pressures of the world. The pressures to bow down and worship the image of the beast. Whether blatant false teaching or subtle accommodation, God desires his people to be victorious over the beast and its image. But there's a third thing, and what is it? The number of its name. We are victors over the economic persecution that the beast and its image will engineer. We stand against that. We don't give in to that. So what we learn is even as the beast conquers the saints by killing them, we saw that back in chapter 11, verse 7, and chapter 13, verse 7, he is being conquered by the saints, Revelation 12, verse 11, and by the Lamb. Hold your place again. Now go forward to chapter 17. Because this is a beautiful picture. After it spells out the beast and the image and the number of its name, look at this victory. Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will what? The Lamb will what? Louder. Conquer Him. See, that's our hope. The hope isn't that I'm going to be able to just endure in my own strength or somehow resist in my own strength. No, the Lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Those are marks of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Called and chosen and faithful. And the result of that, even if they are killed, they are promised an inheritance. And, and interesting, I know it's been a long time since we've, we've started the book of Revelation but back in the letters to the churches, chapters 2 and 3, in every single church, there is given a promise of inheritance. Matter of fact, let me just, 
It'll often say this in a formula to those who overcome, I will give. Remember those statements? Listen to some of these things that are promised that you do not lose even by dying in this world. The tree of life. Deliverance from the second death. The hidden manna. Authority over the nations. White garments and their names in the book of life. The honor of becoming pillars in God's temple with the name of God written on them. And the honor of sitting with Christ on His throne. Those are all promises given to these persecuted and suffering churches. And some of those churches have lost their way and they're still given a promise of inheritance. And so if you come back to our text in Revelation 15, no wonder there is singing in heaven. So now that scene doesn't surprise us. They're there on the coastline. They're harps, the harps of God, and they are singing. By the way, one quick note on that. Harps of God, the victors enjoy their triumph only because of what God has done for them. There's no celebrity status when we stand next to each other with harps of God because we are all fixated on the object of true worship and it's not ourselves and it's not our designer label ministry. It is on God. Now let's look at the song. Look at verse 3. What are they actually singing? And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And really the structure of this does not point to two songs, but one. And perhaps it is the song of Moses that is the song about the Lamb. So you have this, this sort of exodus, this Passover, and it's the song of Moses, but it's actually a song about the Lamb. And it's interesting in Corinthians that Christ is called our Passover. And you have these Exodus themes of Him freeing and delivering and liberating. The song of Moses that is the song about the Lamb. Okay, look at, there's two verses to this song. One verse is on God's work, one on His ways. The first focuses on praise, the second on justice. I just want us to look at this song quickly. Great, verse 3, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Okay, you have two descriptions followed by a title. Similar to Deuteronomy 32, 4, the rock, capital R, talking about God, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, the God of faithfulness and without iniquity Just and upright is He. And I want to quote a verse in Malachi 2.17 because you have these descriptions of this amazing and great God. And it says His ways are just and true. Listen to what Malachi says. He says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, How have we wearied Him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Do you know that wearies the Lord when we constantly come to him and question whether he is just or not? That's easy to do in a world where we are touched so personally by evil. But we need to be careful that in our response... We are not insinuating that somehow we are more just than God is. No one is getting away with evil. 
No one will get away with evil. So if this really calls for faith in the character of God, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. I mean, I'm sure that the people who would become the nation of Israel questioned the justice of God when they were enslaved in Egypt. And then when a representative shows up, their work actually gets harder. You remember that story? Okay, you can, now you can go out and you can find your own straw. And they start to curse the man of God and they start to question the justice of God. And here we're reminded at the end of history, great and amazing are God's deeds. O Lord God, the almighty, just and true are your ways, O king of the nations. Now look at the second, look at the second verse. And here you have a connected pair of rhetorical questions. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Here's the answer. And really, the answer comes in three parts. For you alone are holy. For all nations will come and worship you. And third, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is actually a statement taken out of Jeremiah 10, when Jeremiah is confronting and undoing the the lifeless idols during Jeremiah's ministry. Matter of fact, Jeremiah said this, their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field and they cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. I remember we were visiting a Swaminarayan temple, which is an offshoot of Hinduism in city center, Nairobi, Kenya. And we'd walk up the stairs and you could just feel the oppressive darkness when you went in and they have all these idols around. And in the morning they put food out for their idols And then they removed the food at the end of the day, and those idols did not eat any of the food. There was another idol that was outside. You know, they had to they had to protect they had to protect their gods with a rope so you couldn't go over and touch them. But there was another idol that was out here with wheels on it. And and I remember asking, why does this one have wheels? Oh, that's that's the god that we bring to our festivals. Do you want a god that you need to Attach wheels to? To get him where you want him? This is the very thing Jeremiah was confronting in his day. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried. For they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them. For they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. Now listen. This is where you see this in Revelation 15 again. This is Jeremiah 10. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great. And your name is great and might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. And so we're going to revisit that again at the end of history. There is none like you, God. Who will not fear you? First of all, who will not fear you because of who you are? And what is God? He is the Holy One. For you alone are holy. You alone are set apart, unique, incomparable, uniquely and perfectly pure. Who will not fear you? The second reason why all should fear and glorify God is all the nations will come and worship you. And at first, that doesn't sound like a reason to worship God at all. It sounds like a response, doesn't it? 
that because he's this way, they all come and worship. But here's here's what I believe is happening, that one of the primary purposes of the judgments of the seals and of the trumpets and of the bowls is to call people to repentance. And from all nations, from every people and tribe and tongue and kindred, they will swarm to the one who alone is worthy. And that is a warning to other people that this is the true God. Why should we fear God? He alone is holy. And all the peoples of the earth are worshiping him. But there's a third ground for the fear and glory of God. He says this, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Through creation, through history, through providence, through exodus, deliverance, through his son, and now through final judgments. Notice that though this song is sung by the victors, what is absent in the song? I mean, we just went through two verses of this song that the people on the coast of this sea of glass are singing. There is no praise and worship of me songs. There's no reference to self. These worshipers are completely fixated on God. I love what William Barclay said. Heaven is heaven because in it, at last, all self and self-importance are lost in the presence of the greatness and the glory of God. Nobody's taking a selfie on the coastline of the Sea of Glass. Heaven will be heaven because we are all now looking at the one who alone is worthy of worship. That will be heaven indeed. Now, in closing, look at the final scene of this chapter. Look at verse 5. When the seven angels emerge from the heavenly temple. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. That's a symbol for the very presence of God himself. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. It seems this, the tent of witness, again, is to, to call up again more of this Exodus theology where you're transported now into the wilderness, but in the wilderness where God is a covenant-keeping God. Both God's presence and His witness are in view. What do we mean by that? God is an all-knowing, covenant-keeping God, and there are both blessings and cursings that accompany that truth. He does keep covenant. As Pastor Matt said in his introduction, God's promises are true. He keeps his promises. He is an all-knowing, covenant-keeping God. And these angels that carry the seven plagues actually resemble the vision of the Son of Man in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. Remember when, they turned, when John turned around to see the voice and he sees one like a Son of Man. And one of those descriptions is that he was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And now these seven angels resemble Christ. Why? Because they represent Christ. On this earth, do we resemble Christ as we represent Christ? Or is there absolutely no distinction whatsoever that people can be in close contact with us and totally miss the beauty and the distinct holiness of Jesus Christ? These angels mediate God's decrees. Look at verse 7. 
And one of the four living creatures, we've seen these creatures before. These are created beings. They are awesome, but they are not to be worshipped. They're not God. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. God is spoken of in terms of eternity. Verse 8, and the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Now God is spoken of in terms of majesty and strength. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Here, these four living creatures function as heralds mediating God's justice out on unbelievers. You will see them again in chapter 19. The final words, their final appearance and their final words, this is what they do. They fall before God, these four living creatures, They fall before God and they say, Amen, Hallelujah. Let it be, praise Yahweh. That's what these creatures are doing. They're the ones that are sort of mediating God's justice out through these angels. So, how do we process this? Or so what? We just came through Revelation chapter 15. First of all, and I'm not going to develop this, I'm simply going to ask this question. Will God's justice, his final warnings, mean deliverance for you or judgment? Will he mean deliverance or judgment? Second, for us, the idea of judgment is usually and most often sobering and sorrowful. Yet here in Revelation, in this interlude, you have this picture of worshipful praise to God, a joyful, even a scene of solitude amidst exacting judgment. Which brings us back to the first question. Will God's justice mean deliverance and worship for you or judgment? Third, this passage seeks to reveal what God is like. He is holy. He is just. And his vindication of those he has made saints is praiseworthy. And then finally, and I worked on this one this morning, this passage in its own way calls us to change the way we live. Because of its theme of holiness, because of its theme of impending judgments, because of the scope of all the nations. Here are three that I wrote down. You need to answer that yourself. How does this passage call on you to change the way you live right now, today, as you as you continue to live the hours and the days and the years that God has gifted you? You can borrow mine, but these are mine. But you can write your own. I need to be careful that when questioning the justice of God, I am not doing so in a sinfully critical or bitter spirit. God is just and holy, period. That's tough sometimes. Second, I need to be more vigilant to the influences that are allowed to creep into my own home and shape my family, whether through relational influences, media devices, or the philosophy of the world being preached through music and other mediums. It's not legalism. It's a response to a holy God calling us to follow him and reflect him. 
Third, I need to fixate my attention on God and his glory alone, not on others seeming successes, even in ministry, not on others hurtful words and actions, but on God alone. How does this text call on you to change the way you are living as his disciple? Let's pray.